You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, presenting interviews with famous, fascinating, influential personalities from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Reagan told me a bunch of things that I thought worked for him. It was only after I became a speaker that I realized, ah, this works for me. Reagan's first rule of speeches was don't speak longer than 20 minutes. Former presidential speechwriter Peggy Noonan. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. In the mid-1980s, one of then-President Ronald Reagan's favorite speechwriters was the talented wordsmith Peggy Noonan. She crafted some of Reagan's most memorable speeches, including the address he gave on the 40th anniversary of the D-Day invasion. Behind me is a memorial that symbolizes the ranger daggers that were thrust into the top of these cliffs. And before me are the men who put them there. These are the boys of Puente Hope. And his address to the nation after the Challenger disaster. The crew of the Space Shuttle Challenger honored us for the manner in which they lived their lives. We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them this morning, as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of Earth to touch the face of God. And then later, working on the presidential campaign of then-Vice President George H.W. Bush, Peggy Noonan crafted some of the most memorable phrases that we still recall. Read my lips. No new taxes. For an endless, enduring dream and a thousand points of light. We as a people have such a purpose today. It is to make kinder the face of the nation and gentler the face of the world. Well, along the way, Noonan became an accomplished speaker in her own right. And in 1998, she wrote a book for all of us who were called upon from time to time to give a talk. She called it Simply Speaking. Now, she and I have had many conversations over the years. This is one of them. So here now from 1998, Peggy Noonan. My book is intended for all of those people who are, who find themselves called upon all of a sudden to stand up and give a speech in the United States of America and who don't have a clue how to do it. I found myself, you know, I, I saw myself just, it's, it's like a mirror. I saw myself in these pages as you talked about being called upon to give a speech and you're thinking, yeah. I've been called upon to give a speech. And then a few weeks later you realize, oh my God. Gosh, I've been called upon to give a speech. Oh, no. Yeah, and and the, the last time it actually happened where I spoke to a large group of people was about two and a half years ago. I spoke about interviewing authors. I came was asked to come to a group of authors and talk about interviewing authors. Good. Uh, hey, this is great. I know this I know this stuff, but as the deadline got closer and closer, I realized, my gosh, what am I going to say? Yes, it can be very scary. 25 years I've been speaking to millions of people through a microphone, and I'm getting nervous about speaking to a couple hundred. Yeah, but we are, we're sitting in a radio station kind of environment with two microphones and lots of wonderful little machines <laughs> with blinking lights. And it's just the two of us. And I well know that if I fail or lose my voice or faint, you will edit the tape <laughs> and I will sound okay. The scary thing about being called on to make a speech is that you are introduced by a lone person at a podium 
and then you cross a stage, and suddenly you are the lone person at the podium, and four hundred eyes or ten thousand eyes turn to you and look at you, and their eyes speak, their eyes say, entertain me. <laughs> That's what I think is so scary. It's just you. It's not someone else. I, you you alluded to that study that I'd read a few years ago that said of all the things that Americans fear, the one thing they fear the most is public speaking. Isn't that amazing? People said when they were apparently some pollster had his people fan out and say, what is the thing you fear most? And they expected, of course, death to be the answer or Divorce, the or end AIDS of my marriage. Or something like, yeah. AIDS, uh, drowning. Mm -hmm. They got public speaking. They got making a speech. And I, uh, of course, as you know, I, I could relate completely because I had been a public speaking phobe myself from the age of 15 to the age of 40. I'm, I would guess, correct me if I'm wrong, I would guess that probably almost everyone is at some point, even probably Ronald Reagan at some point in his early life was a public speaking phobe. Um, well, phobia is, is a kind of heightened fear that is actually unusual, but everybody is nervous before they speak, particularly the, those who do it well. Ronald Reagan was always nervous before he spoke. He was a perfectionist. He would go over and over and over a speech or over his remarks, whatever they were. Um, look, John Kennedy, in the last speech he ever made uh, in Texas... The day that he was shot, that morning he showed up and he gave a speech about uh, defense, the U.S. defense structure. And later, the gentleman who sat to his left on the podium, who had never seen Kennedy before, Kennedy had been president for three years, this fellow had never seen him up close, this fellow was watching John Kennedy give a speech, and what he noted was that Kennedy's hands shook terribly as he held his note cards. John Kennedy never got over his nervousness over public speaking and went to coaches for it. I'm not aware Reagan went to coaches, but Reagan was always uh, nervous. I remember reading, I think it was Red Skelton who once said that he, even to the last days of his performing, always got butterflies before he went on. And he said that he knew it would be time to quit when he didn't get the butterflies. Yeah, Helen Hayes always did, and Helen Hayes was mm -hmm. a great theatrical person, not only in movies, but of course on Broadway. And she, she thought that if you are serious and really trying to do well and you are really a professional, you'll probably throw up before you go on. <laughs> and she did. <laughs> Can you make that nervousness work for you? Oh, I, nervousness does work for you in that, first of all, let, let me be bottom line, it keeps you awake. It keeps you on your toes. It keeps you trying. You know, when you're nervous and your heart is beating and adrenaline is going through your body, look, it, it does at least, you know, like the man who's about to be hanged, it does concentrate the mind. <laughs> so, sure, use it. Um, uh, but there are a number of tricks in a way that you can use in order... Uh, giving a, a speech is a twofold problem. There is the writing of the speech, which mm -hmm. is a problem that I go into in the book, and then there is the giving of the speech. For the giving of the speech, there are certain things that are very simple that you can do to make yourself feel better before you go on. What would be one example? One very small example that I found out when I started to speak in public. I was very afraid of that moment I described a moment ago in which... Uh, someone says, and now here she is, Peggy Noonan. Yay! Everybody, you know, very politely <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, claps. I have to go to the podium, I have to lean into the microphone and say, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Just the thinking of that frightened me. Therefore, in my first speech, I walked into the hall. I found that nobody was there yet. I came an hour early. 
I walk into the hall. I took a guy's thought. I said, excuse me, is that the podium? I'll be speaking out. I'm pegging you. I'm about to be speaking an hour. He said, yes, that's the podium. I said, is the mic on? He said, yes. So I walked to the podium, and I leaned in, and I said, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. And it wasn't so terrible. I got to tell you, an hour later when I was introduced, when I got up to that podium, I realized I've already been to this podium. I've already talked into this mic. I've already said thank you, ladies and gentlemen, and nothing terrible happened. (laughs) (laughs) Therefore, something that small can actually help you. Another thing that can help you is uh, deputize members of the audience. To this day, I am actually not above this. I go out whenever I can. I shake hands with the members of the audience. I thank them for coming, for it it is very polite of them to come and and hear me speak. Um, And I also tell them that I have a a fear of public speaking, that I do it very often, but that it always scares me. I'm always afraid I'll have an anxiety attack. And if I do, would you help me? I will say to them, and they'll say, what do you want? I'd say, well, be my posse. Like if I lose my voice or, or like I look stricken by idiocy and nothing happens and I just grunt, would would you take attention from me? Would you deflect people by by getting some attention on your own? They said, like what? I said, well, uh, stand up and say, tell a joke. And someone will always say, well, I'll, I'll sing a song. And my wife will <laughs> sing a song. So they kind of get into it. I deputize. I'll deputize a few tables. And then when I get up, you know, if I start talking and it's not working so well and I tell a few jokes and they bomb, I am not above looking at table three and saying, table three, get ready. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I got to tell you, it just makes me feel better to know that there are people who, once they appreciate that you're not being coy, you really are nervous. They want to help you. Well, well that uh, leads to one of the central points of what you're talking about in this book is that there needs to be a measure of humor in what you're doing. I mean, very few speeches I would gather are so deadly serious that you can't put humor in there somewhere. Yeah, humor is is part of life, and it's a regular part of life. Um, you came into work today, you probably didn't even think about it, but you, you kind of joked around with people. Remember the word joshing? Probably mm-hmm. joshed around a little bit. <laughs> we all do. Don't keep that from a speech. No matter how serious your topic, you can begin with a little gentle humor, and it's good for you. You know, when you can walk in and say something that will make the audience laugh, you know, you're 12 seconds in, you've, you've made a small joke, Maybe responding to the fellow who introduced you, having something to say about the introduction. If you can just make that audience laugh in the first few minutes, you have had a small victory. You know, and a small victory makes you feel better. And it also is nice for the audience. It tells them, no matter how serious we're going to be here today, we are all still human beings, and we can all still talk to each other, relax with each other, and uh, treat each other as human beings. After this short break, Peggy Noonan on what not to put in your speech. Now back to my 1998 conversation with Peggy Noonan. I've read those books or those magazine articles that say, begin your speech with a joke. <laughs> so you suddenly run to the bookshelf and you find a joke. And uh, like you said in the book, you know, a priest, a rabbi, and a you know, priest, you know, coming to the bar. That's not what they had in mind. No, it's not. A pre- um, you know, the sort of jokes that are all over the uh, the sort of jokes guys tell. To tell you the truth, I think there's a little boy-girl difference in the land of jokes. Guys love to tell those stories about, uh, you know, 
Um, a rabbi, a priest, and the last Mohican were out in the Atlantic Ocean in a boat. And the rabbi says, you know, that's a guy thing. Girls really don't do that. But girls fool around. They're very funny with each other, and they, they have wit. Look, it, it's easy to tell someone to begin with some humor. But then they'll look at you and say, where do I get it from? Look, I personally get it from a million sources. For one thing, I go out and listen to people speak. And so, and I'm certainly not above stealing <laughs> anything that I hear and only sometimes attributing it. Um, um, I call my friends before I speak. I always write an original speech wherever I go to speak. And I call my friends. I'll call 10 people and say, I'm going to speak in San Francisco to the Commonwealth Club. It's next week, and it's the night of the basketball championships, and I'm going to speak. Hopefully, I'll, I'll get done just as the championship is about yeah. to go on TV. And I will say, please, please think of something funny to say. You know, and they'll say, oh, Peggy, please, I'll call you back. <laughs> but, you know, two of them will five days later and say, oh, I heard this thing, or I thought of something funny. And I will say, thank you, thank you. And, you know, I will cram it all into the speech. And then only when I stand up to give it, do I look at the crowd? And then your, your natural way of selecting what'll work kicks in. And you just try the ones that you think will work. And if they get a laugh, just leave it at that. If they don't get a laugh, try the ones you don't think will work. <laughs> you can't be too cheap. <laughs> now, let me ask you. You said that we should write out our speech. Yes. The times that I've tried it, maybe it's because I'm so accustomed after a quarter century of reading my news off a screen because I don't have to make eye contact. I'm not on television. Yeah. I, whenever I write out a speech in the past, I tend to, to read my speech. I don't maintain an eye contact with the audience. Isn't that interesting? Do you know radio people always tell me this? People who talk on the radio for a living tell me, and they all make speeches, they all tell me that they they can't imagine writing out a speech and then walking in and giving it. Um, the reason is that you all live by your wits. You've, you've never lived by a script. You just sit down and do it. That is your way. So I will say, in the case of radio people, do it your own way. <laughs> all right? But I will warn you of one thing. The reason I tell people to write down a speech, then you don't have to stick to it. You don't have to stand there at a podium and read it like Mother Teresa. You know, and hello, thank you very much for coming. You know, that's how she st She would stand and read it. But what an electrifying speaker she was. Oh, she was. But look, you don't have to stand and read from it. You just have to know that you have it to fall back on if you go blank. Winston Churchill, the, probably the greatest orator of the century, one day stood up to speak in Parliament and went blank. We don't know why. He was like 58 years old. He was tired. He may have been hungover. You know, Churchill, he'd wake up in the morning and have a brandy. You have brandy for breakfast, you may go blank somewhere along the way. He got up, went blank, and had to take to take, go back and, and sit. He was very embarrassed. His enemies made much of it. If he had had something he could have read, that moment would not have happened. And we've all had those moments. I mean, I have turned to my son. He's 10 years old, and I've said, you can't do it for this reason, this reason, and the third reason... And by the time I'm at the third reason, I've just forgotten, you know, because over 30, the brain cells start dying. <laughs> Therefore, if you've ever had that moment in private, don't have it in public. Bring a script. Why, would, why should we limit the speech to 20 minutes? Because I said so, damn it. <laughs> hey, Bill, could I add, Somebody by the way, has to. when I have told people on television you should always bring a script with you, mm -hmm. they all, unlike radio people, they all nod. I finally figured out why. 
it made sense to them, and they all said that's what they do. The reason? Because they have to read from teleprompters every day. So they're different from you guys. They are used to reading something from paper or on a computer screen. Um, Why should a speech last no longer than 20 minutes? Because Ronald Reagan said so. What was Reagan's thinking? See, Reagan told me a bunch of things that I thought worked for him. It was only after I became a speaker that I realized, this works for me. This is probably universally applicable. Reagan's first rule of speeches was don't speak longer than 20 minutes unless you really, really have to. Why 20 minutes? Look, a president has to make out a case. If you're standing up to speak at the Kiwanis Club about your trip to the Sudan, you have to talk a little bit about how you got there, why you got there, what it was like, what you saw, what conclusions you came to from the evidence that went into your ears and your eyes. That'll take 20 minutes. It doesn't have to take 40 minutes or 60 minutes or an hour and 20 minutes. Uh, Reagan used to point out the Gettysburg Address took about two Mm -hmm. minutes. The Sermon on the Mount, which contains the basis of all Christianity, went about five minutes. Well, if Lincoln and Jesus needed only a few minutes, Reagan felt, well, who needs more than 20 from Reagan? And this is the thing that I discovered when I, two and a half years ago, I was putting together this speech. Uh, I realized, how I'm, how in the world am I going to fill the, whatever it was, the 20 or 30 minutes that they gave me? And I realized once I'd started giving it, I looked down at my watch, you know, when I was practicing it, I'd gone 45 minutes. And mm-hmm. I realized, this is going to be easier than I thought. And then I realized, no, it's going to be harder than I thought. <laughs> I was very embarrassed the other night. I was at a book signing in New York at Barnes & Noble, and I went in. I was a little bit late, and I went in. I just parked, double-parked my car, ran in, started to speak. One of the first things I said is no speech should be longer than 20 minutes. Told a few jokes, talked about how nice they all were to come and how happy I was to be here. Told them a little bit about my book, reminded them again no speech should go longer than 20 minutes, wrapped up my remarks, and with true conceit looked at someone and and said, now that went just about 18, 19 minutes, right? And she said, no, it went 24. And oh. someone else yelled out, 27. Oh, <laughs> I said, it just felt like 27. <laughs> but look, it's hard to keep within 20 minutes, but it's a good thing to try to do. If you go to 30, don't weep, don't cry. It's all right, but, but aim at 20. But see, that's the, this is the thing that I've discovered, and I'm sure you have too. You get wound up, you get going. Look at us. It feels like we've just gotten started. We've been going almost 16 minutes already. We have? Really? Yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately, <gasps> unfortunately, that means I'm just about out of time. Me too. Is there anything else, though, that you wanted to add? Or- no, Bill. You you know, i got to tell you, you always cover everything. Well, you're so easy to talk to. That, that's another thing. It's once you, get, once you get into it, because you talk in here about the – I'm going way over my time. But you talk about being interested in your subject and, and, and having some passion for it and being concerned about it. And once you convey that to your listener, whether it's one listener or – a thousand or ten thousand listeners, it goes real easy. Peggy Noonan is seventy one now, and she still writes and speaks and is seen on TV frequently, and we suspect still gets butterflies in her stomach. And you can find easy Amazon links to Peggy Noonan's books at our website, HeardEverything.com.
Oh, and while you're at HeardEverything.com, be sure and listen to my interview with Barbara Bush. You can knock me if you want. You'd be pretty damn brave to do it, but don't knock my husband or children unfairly. You may not agree with George, but don't lie about him. And my conversation with Dan Quayle. 1988 was a political victory for me being elected vice president of the United States, but it was a personal defeat. And in 1992, is almost the opposite. And of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find Now I've Heard Everything on all major podcast platforms. And thanks so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, two of the most popular daytime soap opera stars ever, Doug and Julie. And if you know Days of Our Lives, you know who I'm talking about. A 2006 interview with Bill and Susan Hayes. Our faces are known because of our longevity on Days of Our Lives. Guys and girls will come up and say, I watched you when I was a little kid I and I was like, with my it's mother. Like mommy and <laughs> <laughs> That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thank you.